This week I got my first electric guitar. For a long time I've wanted to give it a try. Over the years I've dabbled with the acoustic guitar. I can strum chords and sing folk songs and so on, but my favorite style of music, the stuff that really impacts me and gives me a good feeling, is thrash metal. That would be the ultimate kind of sound that I would want to make. For that I need an electric guitar with high gain and a decent amplifier. If you're not a fan of heavy metal music, you might not be able to distinguish thrash metal from classic rock or 1980s Los Angeles glam rock. I can dig all of that well enough, but thrash metal hits a certain experiential hotspot for me. It's heavy on bass and speed, the riffs are complex and deeply satisfying, and the more you hear them, you learn them and you bang your head along. I'm talking about bands like Slayer and Metallica, Overkill and Megadeth. In the 1980s, they fused the speed and energy of punk with the darkness and melancholia of classic heavy metal. The rhythm has a deep pitch, a broad, distorted character, and it chugs along at high frequency. On first exposure to really heavy music when I was young, I found it intimidating. I had a similar reaction to gangster rap. The lyrical content is about war and suicide and chaos and tyranny. Once you get to know this music, once you develop a taste for it, the feeling you get from it, especially at a live show, is not a sense of anger or fear. Those are bad feelings. Rather, you get a sense of camaraderie, empowerment, and awe. The band on stage and the guys in the crowd are smiling. They feel elevated by it, and they love one another. This occasion has got me thinking. What is it that this music does, psychologically? Why do I like it so much? And why do a lot of people find it so distasteful? Let's begin with a word on aggression from Jock Panksepp's book, Affective Neuroscience. He writes, quote, At times, animals threaten, bite, and kill each other. Such behavior is known as aggression. Its manifestations range from a threaten, threatening baring of the teeth to the tearing of flesh, from the graceful dive of a hunting hawk to the spitting spectacle of a cornered cat, from the display of pompous sexual plumage to the catastrophes of well-oiled guns and hidden bombs, aggression is neither a universal nor a unidimensional phenomenon. Many invertebrates, like mollusks, exhibit no apparent aggression during their life cycles. However, nearly all vertebrates exhibit aggression from time to time, and such behavior can have several distinct environmental and brain causes. Three distinct aggressive circuits have been provisionally identified in the mammalian brain, predatory, intermale, and affective attack, or rage circuits. Only the last one provokes enraged behaviors, and presumably the experience of anger. For instance, males that fight each other for access to sexual resources do not appear to be enraged, but instead present themselves as potential champions of the field of competition. Of course, they may eventually become angry at each other as they lock horns. Likewise, predators kill other animals not out of anger, but because they need food to live we must assume that the hunt and the kill is as positive a psychological experience for the predator as it is a fearful one for the prey. Predatory attack is a distinct type of aggression that arises from different circuits than anger or the seasonal competition for dominance among males of tournament species. However, as we will see, it's not fully distinct from the seeking circuits." Unquote. So this appears to agree with my observation about the feeling metalheads get from listening to Slayer. There is a positive, aggressive experience which is totally distinct from anger. A bunch of headbangers thrashing around in the mosh pit is more like a ritual war dance than it is like a fight. There is a sense that we are all together, like chimpanzees proudly patrolling our territory and looking for a good hunt. Modern men are displaced warriors. 
as out of place and humiliated by sitting in cubicles as our chimpanzee cousins would be if we dressed them up in khakis and relegated them to filing TPS reports. Pengsep writes, quote, Although anger appears to have several obvious precipitating stimuli in the environment, the emotion is not created out of environmental events, but represents the ability of certain types of stimuli to access the neural circuitry of rage within the brain. For instance, a human baby typically becomes enraged if its freedom of action is restricted simply by holding its arms to its sides. This highlights a general and lifelong principle. Anything that restricts our freedom will be viewed as an irritant deserving our anger, contempt, and revolutionary intent. Of course, restriction of freedom is not the only precipitant of our anger and scorn. The same response emerges when one's body surface is repeatedly irritated or when one does not receive expected rewards, namely, when one is frustrated." Unquote. Continuing our evaluation of the thrash metal experience, frustration and rage are the opposite of what we feel. Rather than a restriction of freedom, there is a sense of unlimited freedom. In a good audience, like you find at a Slayer show, a guy is free to smile broadly at a complete stranger, the way he might smile at his brother or a close friend. I notice that men, at least in our culture, tend to wear a poker face in public places. So clearly, I have experienced a kind of freedom from social expectations in the context of the heavy metal show. So if rage and anger are at odds with the exciting aggression of thrash metal, what brain systems might we expect to underlie it? Patricia Churchland can help shed light on this. Let's take a passage from the book Conscience by Patricia Churchland. She writes, quote, The hypothalamus is a small, ancient structure in the brain whose components are essential for many basic life functions, including feeding, drinking, aggression, and sexual behavior. In mammals, the hypothalamus secretes oxytocin to particular brain locations, thereby triggering a cascade of events with the end result that the mother behaves maternally and becomes powerfully attached to her offspring. The hypothalamus also secretes vasopressin, which triggers a different cascade of events, motivating the mother to protect her offspring, including defending them against predators. Oxytocin-expressing neurons project their axons to the amygdala, which plays a role in generating emotions including fear, but also joy. At the target sites, the neurons release their oxytocin. One effect of releasing oxytocin in the amygdala is that fear is dampened. This is probably why it helps to cuddle a child who wakes from a nightmare. The cuddling releases oxytocin, calming the child down, reducing anxiety and fear. These oxytocin-expressing neurons also send their axons to a range of other brain areas which include ancient parts of the reward system, as well as to the cortex, especially to the orbitofrontal cortex. In mammals, one such region in the reward system with receptors for oxytocin is the nucleus accumbens, known to play a crucial role in wanting being motivated to seek something, and in liking, getting pleasure from the object or event." Unquote. She goes on a bit further along, quote, "...cannabinoids are marijuana-like neurochemicals in the brain. When cannabinoids dock on specialized receptors, we get positive feelings. They are released in the nucleus accumbens in response to an oxytocin hit. Cannabinoid receptors exist also in the ventral pallidum, likely playing a role in a pleasurable outcome of an action." Binding of the cannabinoids to their receptors is important for rewarding aspects of various kinds of social interactions, such as parenting and pair bonding. The endogenous opioids may be released when highly social animals are with kin or friends. One effect is to dampen the pain response. Or put another way, the threshold for pain is raised when animals are socializing compared to when they are isolated. The endogenous cannabinoids and opioids, along with their portfolios of receptors, are a major source of the pleasure we take in our social lives." Unquote. Okay, believe it or not, 
this sounds closer to the right set of networks. Oxytocin, the maternal love hormone? Yep, I think it's involved. Oxytocin and vasopressin signaling accomplish two things at the same time. They promote a sense of kinship and fuel a tribal loyalty that can be aggressive toward outside threats. If you're going to encounter a bear in the wild, hope it's not a mother bear with cubs to protect. Under some circumstances, a bear might sniff around, show a little curiosity about you, and move along. But when the lives of her offspring are at stake, she's not taking any chances. Better to tear the intruder apart and be done with it. She's not fucking around. The cannabinoid and opioid systems are relevant, too. These neurochemicals promote pleasure, at least in part, by reducing pain and stress. For those of us to whom thrash metal speaks, we find the music deeply meaningful and exciting. Jordan Peterson has a chapter on pursuing what is meaningful in his book 12 Rules for Life. In it, he writes, quote, Meaning is something that comes upon you, of its own accord. You can set up the preconditions. You can follow meaning when it manifests itself, but you cannot simply produce it as an act of will. Meaning signifies that you are in the right place at the right time, properly balanced between order and chaos, where everything lines up as best as it can at that moment. What is expedient works only for the moment. It's immediate, impulsive, and limited. What is meaningful, by contrast, is the organization of what would otherwise merely be expedient into a symphony of being." Unquote. It's only music, right? It's not exactly what Peterson was on about, but there is something of value here to contribute today's, to today's discussion. To the outsider, to someone who thinks heavy music is dissonant, loud, and chaotic, this does not apply. But to guys like me, coming of age in the late 80s and early 90s, thrash metal provided a safe way to push the boundaries of my world experience. Inside the bubble of working middle-class life, living in a small town, going to a small junior high and high school, this kind of music presented an edgy and daring adventure. It dealt with evil and danger war, addiction, political revolution, anarchy, the occult, suicide, and execution. These are concerns that you might expect to discover in the mind of an adolescent human male. We are tribal primates, after all. Primitive hunting and warfare are serious matters, and those are our evolutionary legacy. It's best to have a strong measure of respect for death and combat, but it's best not to cower in fear before such things. If the tribe is to survive, its youth must be courageous and skilled. In the state of nature, the known territory is home. Surrounded by walls or patrolled by guards, this is a place of relative tranquility and safety. But the resources we need, the game we must track and kill, the promises of more fruitful land, those are outside the walls, out in the chaos. This is where I find Peterson's characterization of meaning to be found at the border of chaos and order to be of interest. Thrash metal is extreme chaos under rigorous control. The rhythm is tight and fast, but it is precise. The tone is grungy and growling, but it is ordered. The complexity of the soundscape in these songs is what makes them powerfully engaging relative to the simple chord progressions common to rock music. It seems to me that the further out into the chaos the music can forge, the more impressive and awe-inspiring it is to hear it achieved. I propose that the experience of awe emerges in the presence of ordered chaos. Something is the more awesome the closer it gets to chaos while still holding together. Any further and the experience trips over into terror. Think of the night sky flashing suddenly bright as bolts of lightning spread among the clouds. The heavens seem to crack open like shattered glass. Think of a ship rolling in a storm and a giant wave rises higher and higher beyond it, approaching like a sea serpent determined to devour the crew. 
Think of the crackle of gunfire and the booming of cannons as wave after wave of men rush down into the valley of smoke and bloodshed below. These images are real, and they are indeed terrifying. The sense of meaning is found in having the courage to face such things. Novels and films about war and adventure at sea, horror movies, and heavy metal music expose us to these things. They are a continuation of the mythological narratives, epic poems, and ghost stories which our ancestors have shared for thousands of years, either in the glow of the cinema screen or in the glow of the bonfire. We have enjoyed the stories and the songs. Why? Because we are in awe of such things. The poet or songwriter has set the tale to meter and rhyme. He has conquered it for the tribe. The chaos has been put into order. Now it is less frightening and traumatic. He has become a hero and a leader. We revere such people. They speak magic words. The thrash metal guitarist and drummer use magic too. They summon the sounds of cannon fire and crashing thunder, screams of anguish and growling predators, and they use creative mathematics to control them. The stage is the sorcerer's circle, a pentagram, a geometric figure empowered to capture the demons which manifest and to force them into submission. Music is the spoken language of mathematics. We understand the basics implicitly, but like any language, exposure is necessary in order to gain comprehension. If all you can hear is chaos, then you will feel intimidated or disgusted by the sounds you hear. You recognize the presence of demons, but you don't believe in magic. It's just loud and scary and best avoided. But the language comes pretty easily when the music is good, and soon you come to recognize its beauty. I hypothesize that the magic works by means of oxytocin and vasopressin brought about by a connection to one another as we have a common experience. We're in it together, and if scary things are afoot, we will need each other. So we have a sense of appreciation and respect for those we are with. This leads to the release of cannabinoids and opioids which make the experience pleasurable. In the case of something intense or threatening, the pleasure comes in the form of a sense of thrill. These neurochemicals reduce fear and stress in part by suppressing the prefrontal cortex, allowing us to venture into the chaos without cowering or turning back. In sum, we feel a sense of camaraderie, courage, and enthusiasm. Consciousness is a lonely business. There is no we in the statement, I think, therefore I am. So there must be a role for shared music and ritual in the formation of group cohesion. The reason that makes sense is that everyone engaged with the music is sharing a common rhythmic experience at exactly the same time. Everyone is literally experiencing the same vibration. I found an interesting study called Altered States of Consciousness During an Extreme Ritual by Ellen Lee et al., in which researchers investigated brain functions during a ritual called the Dance of Souls. The ritual lasts for three and a half hours, during which participants are pierced with hooks and weights as they dance to drumming music. The authors write, quote, We predicted that pierced participants would enter an altered state aligned with transient hypofrontality. The theory of transient hypofrontality rests on two premises. A. The brain has limited resources, and brain structures, systems, and areas compete for these resources. And B. The subjective experience of consciousness is a process. When activities such as exercise increase the demands on brain areas responsible for basic sensory and perceptual processes, autonomic nervous system regulation, and motor output, the brain does not receive additional blood flow. Rather, the brain downregulates certain regions to increase blood flow to currently important areas, and data suggests that the frontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex are consistently downregulated in this way. 
The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is heavily responsible for working memory and sustained attention. Thus, downregulation in this area can lead to changes in subjective perception of reality, including time distortions, disinhibition from social constraints, and changes in focused attention. Other theorized subjective experiences of transient hypofrontality include reductions in pain, living in the here and now, little active decision-making, little active logic, and feelings of floating and peacefulness. This change in subjective perception via downregulation is often in- interpreted positively. For example, exercise may provide relief from stress, anxiety, and negative thinking patterns by running on safe mode, the very thinking structure that instigates these mental troubles, the prefrontal cortex. The theory provides a mechanistic explanation for why engaging in activities within the moderate aerobic range can contribute positively to mental health. Transient hump- hypofrontality is hypothesized to be the underlying mechanism in many documented altered states, such as runner's high, meditation, hypnosis, and daydreaming. The subjective experience and thus characterization of the altered states depends on the severity of the prefrontal hypofunction. Therefore, one measurable implication of this theory is that an individual experiencing an altered state would evidence impaired prefrontal cognitive functioning." They go on, Second, We predicted that individuals conducting and facilitating the ritual would enter an altered state aligned with flow. Flow is typically described as a positive mental state in which someone experiences an intense absorption and focus during an activity in which they have the appropriate skills to meet the challenges of that activity. Flow has been documented with musicians, athletes, and within educational settings. Flow is composed of multiple dimensions, some related to optimal performance, e.g. clear goals, sense of control, others related to autotelic absorption, e.g. loss of self-consciousness, transformation of time." Unquote. In the study, Lee et al. used indirect psychological measures, the Stroop test of prefrontal cortex function and the flow state scale, as evidence that altered states and the reduction of prefrontal cortical activity in ritual participants. Both pierced and non-pierced participants also reported a decrease in psychological stress and an increase in the sense of intimacy. According to Patricia Churchland, neurons expressing oxytocin project to the orbital frontal cortex, a major part of the prefrontal cortex. I wonder if being deeply engaged with heavy metal music in the presence of like-minded people suppresses prefrontal cortical activity too, like what the researchers found during an extreme ritual. This might bring about a feeling of oneness and peace. Reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex also reduces pain and makes you feel good. Thrash metal does that for me. Maybe it induces an altered state of hypofrontality. Or maybe my frontal cortex is just underperforming from all the beer and headbanging.